Lord Jesus, thank you again for this morning. It's been wonderful to gather together uh, as a family to, to worship you, uh, to enjoy each other's company, Lord, and uh, now to hear your word. And Lord, I want to pray that you would be here with us during this time. I realize that if, if you don't come to speak and your Holy Spirit's not here teaching us and instructing us that all my preparation and my words are, are really in vain. And so, Lord, I, I, I want to ask you for your help. Uh, would, you, would you be with us this morning as we go through your word? Would you instruct us? Would you speak to us each individually? I believe there's things in here for, for all of us, Lord. And uh, uh, we thank you for this time in advance. Uh, we love you, Lord, again, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, a little bit of context before uh, we jump straight into the story. Uh, Paul, here he is, we've been following a man by the name of uh, Paul, or the Apostle Paul. He's on his third missionary journey. And right now, uh, where we find him in the book of Acts, he's in a city called Ephesus. And he's been there for three years. And during this time in Ephesus, there has been all kind of supernatural works and great things happening in his ministry. God confirming his word there and doing great things through the Apostle Paul. And then there is this awesome verse in the middle of the chapter, and it's in verse 20. And it kind of gives us a bit of a summary as to what this chapter is really all about Acts 19, verse 20, it says, So the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. Isn't that awesome? And you have to understand what that means, when the word of the Lord mightily prevailed. It means a bit more than uh, Bible studies, though there was that, there was a lot of teaching, and and we'll get to that. Uh, But it means that there were lives, individual lives changed, homes changed, Fathers changed, mothers changed. Culture, because of that, because of individuals being changed, there was an entire culture in Ephesus that was being affected uh, by the gospel and the ministry of, of Paul the Apostle. And things are being transformed by the ministry of the Word of God. And this is a subject that fascinates me. These seasons... Uh, that you might call, some people have different words for them. You know, you might call it a season where, you know, it's a revival or a great spiritual awakening. We see this, these times in, throughout church history, not only in Scripture, and whatever you want to call it, it is a great spiritual advance where the kingdom of God is taking a lot of ground quickly and in a powerful way. And again, you see examples of that. You can think of the great revival in the 18th century, the first great awakening, as they'd call it. You've got a hundred-year prayer meeting in a German village called Hernhut. You heard that right. A hundred years. For a hundred years in this little village in a church, there was people praying. Seven days a week. 365 days a year. Isn't that amazing? And I mean that again literally uh, for a hundred years. Anyway, and then you hear about the ministries of, of Wesley and Whitfield 
and the UK. And then you could talk about the ministries of Jonathan Edwards and David Brainard here in the U.S., And then, of course, it goes further. You get into the 19th century and the 20th century. You could talk about the work that the Lord did through people like Darby and Mueller and Spurgeon and Booth and Murray and Moody and the Billy Graham Crusades and even the Jesus Movement in the 60s through the ministry of uh, Chuck Smith. And and really, it was the Jesus Movement, but part of our heritage as, as a Calvary Chapel. And it's great to read about these things. By the way, there's a book out there on the book table, one of the most recommended ones that I would recommend for you to read if you haven't read it. It's called Harvest. And it it tells you the stories of men who were really there. And it happened so recently that uh, I actually know some of these people. And so to talk to them about what it was like to see revival, thousands of people getting baptized on the beach in California, it's pretty awesome. Now, those are all great things, but we don't have to neglect God's word to really find an example of that because that's exactly what's happening here in the book of Acts in chapter 19. Uh, One of the best examples of an outpouring like that of the Spirit and advances uh, for the kingdom of God is happening right here in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 19. And not just in the city of Ephesus, but in the entire region. Uh, the, the Bible says here in this chapter. And that's where we find ourselves in the book right now, uh, in revival, in the midst of a revival. But then at the second half of the chapter, uh, not only does, the, does it talk about revival, but then there is a riot. And so that's how we're breaking down the message this morning if you're taking notes. First part is revival, second part, riot. Now, for the revival, Pastor Dale has covered uh, many of these things that have already taken place. Things that would characterize what's the things that might be happening during a great spiritual awakening or or a revival. We covered how Paul taught the Word of God uh, for two years in the school of Tyrannus daily. For two straight years, every day. They were dedicated to the ministry of the Word of God. If you were to go to church once a week on Sunday and hear one sermon a week. It would take you 60 years to hear as much teaching as Paul did in two years in Ephesus. There was a lot of teaching. They were in the Word of God. And not only that, we covered how there were miracles and demonstrations of the power of God, awesome miracles happening. And then we covered how there was a very real spiritual warfare going on with the sons of Sceva. And uh, for the sake of time, I won't spend too much time revisiting these things. Uh, But on the last leg of this revival, not only is the word of God preached and there's miracles and and there's great, uh, you know, spiritual warfare, uh, but the last part of this revival, and we're going to talk about that here Uh, in in the middle of the chapter here, and that is that there was a demonstration of repentance and renunciation. Repentance and renunciation, and we'll go through that. Uh, Now, I know that we're technically picking up in verse 17 here, but I'm going to actually backtrack to verse 11 to read uh, kind of a a bit of a recap because it is on the legs of of last week's passage. And so, uh, verse 11, Now, God worked unusual miracles by the hand of Paul. 
so that even handkerchiefs or aprons were brought from his body to the sick. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists took it upon themselves to call the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, we exorcise you by the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches. And also there were seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest who did so. And the evil spirit answered them and said, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are you? Then the man in whom the evil spirit was was leaped on them, overpowered them, and prevailed against them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. Verse 17, here's where we pick up. This became known to both all the Jews and Greeks dwelling in Ephesus, and fear fell on them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. And many who had believed came confessing and telling their deeds. And also many of them who had practiced magic brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted up the value of them, and it totaled 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord, there's our verse, the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. And so uh, because of all that's going on, because they're seeing the real power that, that in the message that Paul was bringing, the power in the name of Jesus, They see that there is power to heal in the name of Jesus. And they're seeing that spiritual warfare is real. That this power wasn't going to come from religious practice or ritual, whether that was Jewish practice or whether that was pagan practice. But that the power, the real power, was in the name of Jesus. And they're seeing this. And they're recognizing something, that the demonic realm... And spiritual warfare is very real. They've seen it, I've seen it. And as a a result, the name of the Lord Jesus is magnified. But again, look at verses 18 and 19. Notice, it's talking about believers here, by the way. And many who had believed came confessing and telling their deeds. There's the confession. Also, many of those who had practiced magic brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all, and they counted up the value of them, and it totaled 50,000 pieces of silver. So before the Sons of Sceva incident, evidently, uh, these believers, because that's that's what they were, they didn't know necessarily that what they were involved in was real or demonic. Maybe they saw their actions in an innocent light. Not a big deal. If you were to translate it in modern terms, it's like they had Ouija boards and they played it as a party game but didn't realize that there was a real spiritual connection to what was going on. And so they thought, no big deal with the Ouija. Or they, you know, a deck of fortune-telling cards and again, they might have laughed about that. Own books and whatever, and after realizing all that's taken place with the sons of Sceva, they realize, I want to be on the right side, and I want to get right with God. And they were going to renounce any sort of thing that would come in conflict with their walk with God. And they renounced, first of all, by confessing, and second, by burning their books. 
There again in verse 18, they come confessing and telling their deeds. Can I tell you something? Confession is a hallmark of a true work of God in a person's life. Confession is a hallmark in a true work of God in a a person's life. That when God moves, people confess their sins. People take notice of what they've done, and they confess their sins, and they get right with God. No matter what the cost. They realize, I, 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 want, I want to get right with him. And make no mistakes, these books and scrolls and incantations were valuable. 50,000 pieces of silver. They'd say back in those days that one piece of silver was a day's wage. So they had 50,000 days wages worth of books burned. Most scholars that I read say about the value of one to five million dollars worth of books burned that day. And that's how serious they were about getting right with God. They were willing to renounce property and burn it. And to me, this speaks to a lot of things. But it speaks to me about the importance of of renunciation. And I think that this applies to everyone in this room. No matter what age, no matter what your gender is, I want to ask, what will you renounce for the glory of Jesus Christ? What pleasure, what gift, what activity that may be perfectly honorable in the world's eyes and maybe even honorable in some of your brothers' and sisters' lives, but for the glory of Christ and the advancement of his kingdom, your usefulness as a servant of God and just for setting oneself apart for him, Will you say, I will renounce this? And listen, I, I, I'm, I'm really anxious, actually, as I prepare this. I don't want to make this a legalistic thing. And so I'm not going to make a list for you. I'm not going to say, uh, you, know, you know, this, that, and that, and the other. Some of these things are sinful because it's a stumbling block to you. And, and you just can't do it for the glory of God. And a lot of these things are personal between you and the Lord. And so again, I I will not make a a complete list. But I see that this attitude of renunciation seems to be completely lost. A willingness to say, I'm going to let go of this for the glory of God. So that I can walk with him. For for again, effective service and, and setting myself apart wholly for him. And it seems to me that sadly, Christianity today, there are so many of us, so many churches and and so many individuals that want to yell out to the world, world, we're just like you. We're just like you. We can enjoy everything that you enjoy. We will partake in everything that you can partake in. And maybe we'll do it in a little bit of moderation, but we'll partake. And uh, again, these things are between you and the Lord. But if the Holy Spirit is convicting you this morning about something, I pray that you will have a private moment with him soon and seriously consider letting go of some of these things. And you can't read about these great works, these great revivals in, in people's lives without them getting a sense 
of them setting themselves apart for the glory of God. And again, not for legalism uh, or out of compulsion to please another person. But that they found pleasure, a real pleasure in serving God. And the indication that I get from this passage and again throughout these stories in history is that these people were pleased to do this. Not some great sacrifice to them, but that this was that the best deal that they ever had. That they get to say no to this thing that has so much control over my life, and I get to say yes to more of Jesus. And again, verse 20, the revival. So the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. To them, all worth it. This radical repentance and renunciation in their lives. And I've been praying for you uh, that perhaps if there's anything that the Lord would have you to, to let go of, that you would, you would do it. Uh, we'll take all of that, and, and again, we'll go into part two here. After the revival, we have a riot. And that is something that's true of every good work of God as well. And that is that when a good work is happening, a spiritual battle takes place, and you can bet that it will be met with opposition. That's what we're going to find in the second half of Acts chapter 19, verse 21. When these things were accomplished... Paul purposed in the Spirit when he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia to go to Jerusalem, saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. So he sent into Macedonia two of those who ministered to to him, Timothy and Erastus, but he himself stayed in Asia for a time. If you're you're taking notes, these two verses are actually a bit of an outline of what's going to take place in the rest of the book of Acts. Uh, that he's going to make his way passing through Macedonia, he's going to pass through Achaia, and then he's going to make it to Jerusalem, and after that, he is determined uh, to see Rome. And that's how it will play out. He will see Rome, but not exactly the way that Paul thought it would. Uh, Paul will make it to Rome in a slave ship uh, that will get wrecked and all the rest. Spoilers, you're allowed to read ahead. It's okay, you can read your Bible. It's all good. Anyway, that's what's going to happen in the rest of the book. He'll go to Jerusalem, and he's going to end up making it to Rome, and that's where the book of Acts is going to end. Now, Luke uh, doesn't mention it here, but here for you note-takers and you Bible students, uh, one of the reasons that he's going to pass through Macedonia and Achaia, and if you look at it on a map, it's actually not exactly linear, straight to Jerusalem from Ephesus. Uh, You can read about this in in, uh, Romans chapter 15 and 1 Corinthians, an offering. Uh, for the needs in Jerusalem, for the church in Jerusalem. And so he's setting his itinerary here. That's, he's purposed in his heart. Uh, uh, after this, uh, after I gather this offering, go to Jerusalem. I want to make it to Rome. Uh, his itinerary will work, will, will work out, but just not exactly the same way uh, that he thinks it will. And this is off note, but I, I just wanted to say, and that's, it's going to be something that we'll see in, the, in this chapter. Um, just as a true work of God should be effectual in, in, in communities and individuals, one of the things that it should affect in your life is the way that you spend your money. 
I think the, where we spend our money the most and the things we desire the most actually have a little bit to say about our priorities and what we worship. And I would just say that uh, hopefully for the glory of God that he uh, will affect the way that you think about your finances, you know, where you invest, how you invest, how you save, how you deal with debt. All of those things are, are important for the Christian. And, and Paul, this was important to him. I, 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 I'm not even gathering a, a, a collection for myself. I just want to gather a collection for those in need in Jerusalem. And that was something that was a priority to him. Verse 23, And about that time there arose a great commotion about the way. This is the third time in the book of Acts that Christians are referred to as people of the way, and I love that. You know, it's the second time in this chapter, and it goes to show that, you know, Christianity isn't just about an event that you attend on Sundays or a religion that you join and leave if you choose. That, there's, that their lives, it, it was a way of life. Jesus did say that he was the way, the truth, and the life, that no one came to the Father except by him. And they were living on that way, in the way that uh, pleased Jesus. So anyway, they're the people of the way. So verse 24, For a certain man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Diana, brought no small profit to the craftsmen, he called, he called them together with the workers of similar occupation and said, Men, you know that we have our prosperity by this trade. Moreover, you see and hear that not only at Ephesus, but throughout almost all Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away many people, saying that they are not gods which are made with hands. So not only is this trade of ours in danger of falling into disrepute, but also the temple of the great goddess Diana may be despised and her magnificence destroyed, whom all Asia and the world worship. Now when they heard this, they were full of wrath and cried out, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. So think about what's happening here. Uh, you, you have these owners uh, in the city there. They have their business. They're silversmiths. And what their trade is, is that they are idol makers. They were businesses that were in association with the temple of Diana. And there in the city of Ephesus, uh, there was this amazing structure. The temple of Diana was regarded in those days as one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was supported by 127 pillars. Each pillar was 60 feet high, and it was decorated with images and sculptures all around each pillar. It's huge. It was huge. And remember, when we read the Bible, that this is not just story time, you know, that this was a real place. Uh, the Temple of Diana lost in history for a time until it was discovered in 1889. And, uh, and then the main altar was unearthed in 1965 in Ephesus. And that was the center of worship for the goddess Diana. And it was a strange thing, really, uh, if you hear the story. The idol that they worshipped in the temple, basically the story was that there was a black meteorite that fell from the sky. And they fashioned it, or it appeared like a grotesque woman. And if I, you know, I'm going to say this trying to not disturb people too much, but it was a woman, 
and she was idolized as a symbol of fertility and sexuality, and all the world around that region worshipped there. And the worship of Diana was completely immoral. Having sex with the temple prostitutes, and there were trinkets and things that were sold there in the city of Ephesus. And Demetrius is part of all of this. And all the other business owners are there. And they're realizing that Paul is evangelizing and discipling all of these Christians. They're all following Jesus now. And now they're not buying our idols anymore. We're looking at the sales charts, Demetrius says. You know, come gather for a sales meeting. Look at our sales charts. They're down. The market is failing. All because of this spread of Christianity. And this temple, make no mistake, again, very popular. There were cults that worshipped there. And so they're upset about this. And then notice again in verse 26, I love Paul. This Paul has persuaded and turned away many people saying that they are not God's which are made with hands. And I love Paul here again. He gets in the market, teaching the word of God. He's saying the truth there. And he's saying, hey, these little statues, that meteor that fell from the sky, that that weird thing, and these idols that are being made, they're nothing. They're not God. You're not worshiping God, and there is no goddess Diana. What you're really, you know, when you're worshiping Diana, you're really worshiping your own slavery to immorality. And you're not free. You're you're bound by the lust of your flesh and this little image. This has power over your life. And he says, forget the statues, forget the idolatry. Worship the true and living God. And Demetrius is saying, again, this is bad for business. I think that's a great compliment to the effectiveness of Paul's ministry. And I'd like to note that Paul was not in a campaign to close down the temple of Diana. He wasn't holding up a sign saying, down with Diana, close down the temple. Paul was after people's hearts. And he preached the gospel and the power of the gospel that, was, that is powerful to save was saving and transforming people's lives and people were no longer interested in idols anymore. Notice they even bring the state into matter, right? It's like this is affecting Asia. And I think of how the gospel can and should penetrate and change the world. If you want reformation in Kelowna, at least we could start here in Kelowna. It's not going to be about, uh, uh, you know, cursing everything around here and hoping that a politician is going to fix it. It's going to be by people's lives being changed. And people stop worshiping Diana and stop buying the trinkets and idols and, and again, not welcome. And so verse 29, so the whole city was filled with confusion and rushed into the theater with one accord, having seized Gaius and Aristarchus and Macedonius, Paul's travel companions. And when Paul wanted to go into the temple, the disciples would not allow him. 
Then some of the officials of Asia, who were his friends, sent, sent pleading that he would not venture into the theater. Some, therefore, cried one thing and some another, for the assembly was confused, and most of them did not know why they had come together. And they drew Alexander out of the multitude, the Jews uh, putting him forward, and Alexander motioned with his hand and wanted to make a defense to the people. But when they found out that he was a Jew, all with one voice cried out for about two hours. Great is Diana of the Ephesians. This is crazy. Demetrius uh, starts a riot in the city of Ephesus. The whole city is confused. And they rush into this theater. By the way, this theater is still standing in Ephesus. You can visit it. The acoustics are said to be pretty amazing there. You're shaking your head. You've seen it? Yeah? It's pretty cool, right? It's still there. I've seen pictures. And they're shouting, great is Diana of the Ephesians. And Paul here, what's his thought? He thinks, wow, a crowd? Great. An opportunity to preach to them. (laughs) He's thinking, this is awesome. They've gathered a crowd for me. I'm going to go preach. But he's got brothers and, and friends of his saying, no, Paul, not right now. He's like, let me at him, let me at him. And uh, uh, his friends are saying, no, there's an angry crowd out there. Don't do it right now, Paul. Just take it easy. Opponents of Christianity. The funny thing is they were confused and they didn't know much. I find that's often true of opponents of Christianity. A lot of times... Uh, they say, people will say that they disagree with the Bible and yet have never read it. Christianity was bad for business, for the business of selling idols. It wasn't great. And that Christianity was bad for the promotion of the goddess Diana. And so because of that, they opposed it. God is moving. Lives are being transformed. Families are being changed. A good thing is happening here in Ephesus, but yet many people wanted to oppose that great work. And it's something that happens uh, when people get very serious about their walks with Jesus. And this, again, taking pla- has taken place in church history. Great change is happening in cultures. Uh, I read about George Whitfield preaching in Philadelphia. It says that during that time, bars were all closed down in Philadelphia during his ministry. And so... He's preaching Christ and it's affecting the economy. Ben, Fa- ben Franklin, who was also there, uh, he talked about how he would hear people singing hymns on the streets and in their houses. Because back then there wasn't the same kind of insulation and air conditioning and all the rest. And so you can just hear people in their houses. And, and Ben Franklin just says, yeah, there was, there was hymns being sung on the streets of Philadelphia. You hear about the revival in Wales. Uh, policemen not knowing what to do because the crime rate, crime rate dropped so low. That they'd show up to work and things were so slow that they'd gather and sing in churches. You'd have polices gathering and singing in churches in Wales because there's no crime. Because people are being transformed by the gospel. And I know that when I talk about these things to you, it sounds like pigs flying. You know, this will never, ever happen. But God has done it before, and I believe that He can do it again. He did it in Ephesus, and that same Jesus lives today. He lives today. 
And when it happens, society has changed. But something else happens again, that there is opposition. And they repeated this chant, Great is Diana of the Ephesians, for two hours straight. Uh, the noise must have been deafening. You could have pri- probably heard it for, you know, blocks or whatever. And now all that scream still today echoes in our world. And it's a strange one, isn't it? Isn't this strange? You read about this and think it's strange. Now today it might not be great as Diana of the Ephesians. That's not what people will chant. But they might chant, great is my favorite sports team. Great is my political party. Great is my path to riches. Great is pornography. Great is intoxication. And people may not yell that out loud, but they certainly say that in the way that they spend their time, money, resources, and efforts. And here's the striking thing about all of this. That with all of this loud worship, that if we were to shout, great is the Lord Jesus Christ, we're the weird ones. You know. I don't mind saying it again. Great is the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? You know, you could take your Diana, you could take your sports teams, you could take your political parties, your material wealth, your immorality, your intoxication, or whatever other thing that you want to give yourself completely to, and you can live a life for any of those things, and many, many people do, and they are in bondage by it, and yet they will shout about how great it is, but we have the blessing of living for the true and living God and proclaiming His greatness. And I, I'm, I'm asking God and praying that God would give us the boldness and the clarity uh, to the point that even when society calls us weird for worshiping Him, that we pay no mind to it. They're weird. You know. Just say it. No, you're weird. You're worse. You're worshiping Diana of the Ephesians. There's this black meteorite like falling from the sky. That's weird. So listen, church, even if there is a theater full, a Facebook full, an Instagram full, a Twitter full, a YouTube full of screaming people that are saying that this is great and Jesus is not, I would say that we can walk in assurance with a more sure faith proven uh, by the presence of the Holy Spirit in our life and the Word of God. We can all proclaim great is the Lord Jesus Christ without any shame because we know that He is. And for all the proclaiming of Diana's greatness, for all the glory of that temple, for all the worshiping of the meteorites, and on and on and on, There is no worshipers of Diana today. They're gone. And that temple, uh, the modern site of that temple of Diana, is basically gone. There's one pillar standing. Great is Diana of the Ephesians is gone and has been for hundreds and hundreds of years. But Jesus Christ rules and reigns still today and the gates of hell will not prevail against his church.
Amen? Until he returns. And verse 35, And when the city clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, that man is there who does not know. What man is there that does not know that the city of the Ephesians is the temple guardian of the great goddess Diana and of the image which fell down from Zeus? Therefore, since these things cannot be denied, uh, if you're so sure that Diana is so great, uh, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rashly. For you have brought these men here who are neither robbers of temples nor blasphemers of your goddess. Therefore, if Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a case against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you have any inquiry to make, it shall be determined in the lawful assembly. For we are in danger of being called in question for today's uproar, for there being no reason which we may give to account for this disorderly gathering. And when he said these things, he dismissed the assembly. I think that's pretty cool. Two hours of of shouting, great is Diana the Ephesians, the city counselor. Uh, I can imagine him just waiting, listening to them and waiting for them to get tired. You know, it's like, when are they going to, can I get in now? No. Can I get in now? No, not yet. All right, finally, they're quieting it down. He says, okay, order, order. He explains to them, guys, uh, we all, you know, we're, we're saying Diana's great. Uh, she can probably defend herself. Um, do we have to really make a big deal out of this? Uh, he wants to keep order because he knows that the Romans wouldn't be happy about this. And, and he says that besides that, Paul and his associates are not on an anti-Diana campaign. Uh, so if we're going to deal with this, uh, we're going to deal with this in a civil and a fair way. And so the people agreed to it. And God used that city clerk to calm the mob and to, Im- and to end the immediate threat to Paul and the other Christians. could have gone in an uproar and just kind of uh, spread throughout Ephesus and burned down houses and gone insane. But I think God here, sovereign and preserving Paul again until his time. And again, in all of this, the work of Jesus uh, does not go forth without pushback from the kingdom of darkness. It just doesn't happen. And I've heard people say this to me. Every time I try to get serious about Jesus, I get a spiritual attack. So I just don't want to get serious right now. And I feel that I can tell you this with confidence, that if you do ever decide to to get serious with Jesus, to live a holy life, separated unto him, that there will be pushback. That if you want to be effective for his kingdom, there will be pushback and it will be spiritual. I won't sugarcoat that for you. But I'll also tell you this, and I can tell you this by experience, that Jesus Christ is there during the difficulties in the midst to strengthen you and to comfort you and to be there with you. And it is better for you, far better for you to go forward trusting Jesus for his power and his protection over your life to go with him than to stay back in the shadows living a life of compromise and mediocrity. And so live in expectation of pushback But be prepared for it and go forth in confidence with our King Jesus.
knowing that he overcomes. And so I guess in, in closing here, how do you want to live your life? Do you want to live your life as a person who, who lives for Jesus, who's laid aside everything that would get in the way of him? I want that. If you don't know who to pray for for that, you can pray that for me. Or will you cling to your idols, the things that you just don't want to let go of, and fear the pushback. I don't want that to be you. I want to leave you with a charge that in Jesus' name that you wouldn't be afraid of the pushback and that you would push forward for him knowing that he who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. Amen? All right. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Uh, we see this great revival in the book of Acts. We know that it's, it's not simply a, a work of, of a great uh, pastor or preacher or, or apostle, but that ultimately that this was a work that you did. And Paul was simply a vessel. And the church and the, the disciples simply a vessel uh, for your great power and work. And Lord, we know that you're the same uh, yesterday, today, and forever. And we pray uh, for a fresh filling of your spirit. Lord, I pray that for us as individuals that we would be willing to let go of some of those things that hinder us in the race. Lord, that we would be willing to consecrate ourselves unto you and for your work and for your glory. Lord, we thank you that you're with us during the difficulties and the hardship uh, that this world uh, presents us with, but we know that as overwhelming as things are, as loud as the shouts are, Lord, uh, you have overcome and you're greater. And so, Lord, help us to walk boldly uh, in that truth. And, uh, Lord, I pray that you would continue this work in us. And, and would you, Lord, would you start a revival again? Would you revive your church here in Kelowna and in British Columbia and in Canada and North America and in Europe and everywhere across the world, Lord, uh, that people would be changed uh, by your power and that, uh, that it would change the world, Lord. And again, for your glory and until we see you at your appearing. Lord, we want to live for you. We love you, Lord, and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.